Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Alrighty, y'all, we're continuing our text today in uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 12, if y'all want to join me there, if you brought your Bibles today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed, is in, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word of the Lord. This is going to be a fun one. I'll turn to Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 12. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Did y'all know that just recently, uh, the day that we think of as Halloween is also the anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. It's the day when famously Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the door in in Wittenberg asking for a debate. The crazy thing is that's what we think of as the beginning of the Reformation, but in reality he had mailed that to um, someone called Albert, Archbishop Albert, asking for the debate, and that's really what caused the Reformation was that exchange that began to happen as a result of the sending of the letter but the on the door was just kind of a something that you do it wasn't dramatic it wasn't some kind of big monumental moment it was just that's what you do you put it on the door you know it was kind of like a an afterthought but it makes for a good mental image doesn't it he's like bang 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 95 nails for 95 
theses, I don't know, but that, that was actually sparked by the same questions that are coming up in this text. Because Martin Luther recovered for us, not something new, in fact, he found it in Augustine, and he found it in Paul, but he recovered this idea that law and gospel are distinct, and that we need to think about them with clear distinctions in our minds as we read the Bible. And the Reformation, in a lot of ways, hinges on how we understand how we understand what this text is talking about. Now, there's details in this text that are hard to sort out and that really, really faithful scholars disagree about. So we're going to do our best, and we're going to try to get some clarity today um, as we dig in here. Romans chapter 2 verses 12 and following. And I have a question. Have you guys ever, like I did when I was a kid quite a bit, had a dream that you were exposed? You know what I'm talking about? Like physically exposed? I used to have this dream when I was a kid that I went to school without my britches. Did anybody ever have that dream when you were little? And I was talking to somebody about this. Who was I talking to about it? Somebody, was it you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Meredith and I were talking about this for some reason. I don't know why. But my go-to inside of my dream was to grab a garbage can lid in order to, you know, cover up the part of me that was showing from where I forgot my britches. And I think we all have this fear that's just awakened in our dreams that somehow or another, something that we don't want exposed is going to be exposed. And if you imagine just your most vulnerable moment or maybe the moment that you're most ashamed of, the moment that you're most regretful because of just being broadcast to the world, we can all imagine that there's some trepidation associated with that. There's fear associated with that. It's deep in our souls. It began all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve didn't want to be exposed before God because they'd sinned. And we don't want to be exposed before God. We don't want to be exposed before one another. And as it turns out, our worst fears are true. We will be exposed before God and one another. At some point, we will be exposed. And this text is going to talk to us about how we need to deal with that reality and what it looks like to trust in Christ with the knowledge that that moment is going to arrive for all of us. So the first thing that Paul wants us to know is that all humans will be judged. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So it doesn't matter if you have the law or you do not have the law. You're going to be judged. And this word perish is not the kind of perishing that you do at death. It's the kind of perishing that you do after death. This is eternal condemnation perishing. So all who sin without the law will suffer eternal condemnation without the law. So even though they don't have the law of Moses, even though they don't have the written revelation of God, they're still going to perish. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Everyone is going to be judged, um, and it's coming for all of us. The only thing that's different is that in the case of those who have access to the law, 
their judgment will also be meted out according to the written law, right? They have a different standard, and we'll see more about this in just a second. So then we have verse 13, and here we see that although judged, only some will be justified. Now this word justified is really important for Paul, and what it means is to be counted as righteous before God. It means for God to look at you and say, yes, I declare, it's a declaration on God's part about human beings. Yes, I declare you to be righteous. We know that in the story of Abraham, this happens on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God and God declared him righteous. And the same thing is the case for those of us who trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus and on that basis, God declares us righteous. He says, yes, when I look at you, I see righteousness. I declare you righteous. So that's what we mean here by justified. Only some are going to be justified. And look at what this text says. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So what we are finding out here is that hearing only has value if it leads to doing. And I'm the guy that's pushing everybody, hey, go have a quiet time, right? Go study the word. Right? But if we do that, just like James says, if we plant ourselves in the word, if we study vigorously, if we spend all of our time reading the Bible, but we don't do anything about what we've read, it's like someone who looks in the mirror and sees but doesn't do anything about the appearance, right? And the same thing is the case with the word. And what Paul is saying is that justification in some manner or another has to do with what we do. Justification in some manner or another has to do with what we do. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. So that's, that's kind of going to bring a little bit of tension because... Like I've said before, when you're standing before God in judgment and he starts telling you about your secrets and he starts exposing you before himself and others, then what you don't want to do is start arguing with him about yourself. You don't want to start telling him about things that you've done. You don't want to start talking about, I don't want to start talking about coat, right? What I want to talk about is Jesus. And that is absolutely the case. We're going to drill into this a little bit, but... Even hearing the word, which has the power to transform us, it has the power to awaken in us faith in Jesus Christ. It has the power to make us new. It has the power to actually, to actually regenerate our hearts so that we're made alive by it. Even hearing the word doesn't have the power to justify. It's doing the word. that It's the doers of the word. Not doing of the word, but the doers of the word who are justified. Mere access to the law only changes the basis of judgment. So what Paul's really saying here is that, look, just because you're part of the commonwealth of Israel and you're someone who has the law as a natural part of your identity doesn't mean that you have an automatic in with God. That is not enough in and of itself to guarantee that you're going to stand justified before God at the judgment. In fact, all that's happening is the standard of the judgment is changing. 
And he's going to reiterate this in verses 17 through 24. So let's look at this, how he builds this out at the bottom of this passage. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Now you hear what's going on here? He, he's pointing out that when you stand before God and you're bragging about the fact that you have the law, this is not going to get the job done. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, if you hold the law, your possession of the law as a badge of honor, then do you break it, right? Do you who, who teach others, do you teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? It goes on to show that just having access to the law does not bring justification. It actually brings judgment. It says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So, hearing the law will not result in justification. It's only doers of the law who will be justified. That's here in verse 13. Now, there's a couple of ways that we could take this. We could take this as some kind of impossible hypothetical. That if anybody in the world were to keep the law then that person would be justified. But this is not something that can really happen. But as far as the law goes, if you want to be right with God on the basis of the law, you've got to keep every bit of it. That could be what Paul's saying. He could be saying that in, in that world, if you want to give yourself to that path, go ahead, but know that perfection is a standard and it's going to be according to the law that you're going to be judged. So you better not come up short. The other thing that Paul could be doing is he could be saying that it's only doers of the law who will be justified. Right, he could be doing either one of those things. We're going to have to dig in a little deeper to figure out exactly what's going on. So then we get to verses 14 and 15 here. And here's where we get to the biggest rub in the passage. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And we'll get to the rest of this in just a second, but here's what's going on. First of all, Paul wants us to see that your deeds are a demonstration. Your deeds are a demonstration. Now... There's a couple different ways to take this text, and really, truly, I think this is one of those texts that um, is the most difficult to make a decision on, and I've wrestled with it for about six weeks now. I mean, I've been just arguing with it for six weeks, trying to get myself to a place of clarity. We talked about it for probably an hour at Story Group on, on Wednesday, and I mean, it's just been one of those where you just kind of are in it for a while. Um, as soon as I knew I was preaching through Romans, this is the first text. It's the one that I knew. Like This is the one that I'm going to have to wrestle with the most. From Romans 1 all the way to the end. This is the text. Because what's going on here? Listen to this. Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. 
And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day of judgment, right? So what does this sound like? It sounds like there's Gentiles who do not have the law, are doing good by nature, right? They don't have the law, they're doing good by nature, and they're doing such a good job of it that they're going to stand before God in judgment with their conscience bearing witness, right? That this, everything's going to be okay because of keeping the law, but... So we have to be careful about how we interpret this. And there's a few different options about what's going on here. The first one is that these are Gentiles who do not have the law and in the final judgment will be saved because of how they've obeyed the law. That's one possibility that we could look at this and kind of see. The next possibility is these are Gentiles who do not have the law and by nature, so this is where the question comes in. There's a question about what it means to not have the law and how that's related to by nature, right? Because in English, the way that the commas are placed, this can only be taken one way, right? It has to be that they're, they by nature do what the law requires. But in Greek, word order is kind of not a thing at all. And in this case, even if it were a thing, we can't really make out exactly whether that's the case. Because it could be, another way to read this would be, for Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Do you see that? So now it's not doing that's by nature. It's not doing the law that's by nature. It's having the law by nature. So by nature, they don't have the law because they're Gentiles, right? So either by nature, they do the law, or by nature, they don't have the law. You see that? One of those two is going on. And because they keep it, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. And then we hear they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So what I, what I think is going on here is that these are Gentiles who by nature do not have the law, who keep the law because the law is written on their hearts. Well, can you think of any Gentiles who keep the law because the law is written on their hearts? If that's the case, can you think of anybody like that? Well, I do. <laughs> and we have to be careful about this because it doesn't mean that I keep the law perfectly. It doesn't mean that I keep the law out of willpower. It doesn't mean that I do everything required in the law, but it means that I keep the law. And we know this is the case because even Paul... We know that it's the case that we can keep the law in this way because even Paul, when he gets to a little bit deeper place in the book of Romans, is going to talk about how the law is summarized by love, right? Love is the work of the law. So we have, we have this gift of love. And I even have a definition of Christians that I've had for about, man, I guess I first started talking this way 10 or 12 years ago, but a Christian 
is a human being who is supernaturally enabled to love God and other people. A Christian is a human being who is supernaturally enabled to love God and other people. In other words, a Christian is someone whom the Holy Spirit has empowered to what? Keep the law by loving God and other people. And think about the life of Jesus. Did Jesus keep the law perfectly? Did he or did he not? I see a lot of heads nodding yes. I see a couple shaking no. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever work on Sabbath? Okay. Did Jesus ever break any of the ceremonial laws by eating something that wasn't his? Yep. So did Jesus keep the law perfectly? Did he? <laughs> and in a sense, he did, and in a sense, he did not, right? Jesus kept the law in the sense that it was intended to be kept. He loved his father, and he loved his fellow human beings. He fulfilled the law in that way. He kept the law. He was blameless according to the law, even though he did some things. Like He, he, did, he did some things. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think about it that way. He didn't sin. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything that was against his father's will. He never did anything that was crossways with the intention of his father but if you were an onlooker and you're watching Jesus he didn't walk through the law with some kind of like meticulous to-do list to make sure that he did every single thing right according to the letter of the law so it's the doers of the law who are going to be justified now we have these Gentiles who are being justified right they're going to stand in judgment and they're going to feel pretty good about things. I think it's talking about Christians. But it could be talking about other Gentiles who are not Christians. In which case, we're not going to read this as though they're going to be saved. There's another way to take the rest of this. But what I think it is, is it's us. Okay? We are Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, who nonetheless keep the law and are a law to ourselves. What is that law? We're a law to ourselves. It's the gospel, right? So they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is directly from Jeremiah 31. There's only two other places in the New Testament that uses this language of the law being written on hearts. The other two are in Hebrews, and they're direct quotes of Jeremiah 31, right? And here is the only other occurrence of this concept even. And it's hard, it is just hard for me to imagine that Paul is not thinking about his Bible. It's just, I just can't get there. I cannot get to that place where I believe that Paul is not thinking about his Bible as he's writing this letter. So that's why I think that that's what's going on here. Um, so then we have to figure out what's going on. It says that their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this is um, accusing and excusing thought. So there's something interesting going on here, and part of it is tied to this word them, right? And Nick actually pointed out in the story group, I hadn't come to this yet, but he was right that this word for them is not the normal word for them. It's actually the word that you would use for between them or one another kind of deal, right? 
So what's going on is you have two parties, and these two parties are accusing and excusing between themselves. Two parties, they're accusing and excusing between themselves. So we need to locate at least a couple of parties here. We need to locate more than one, one party, more than one uh, reference. So they're excusing and accusing between one another. And some people have proposed that this is actually like different groups of Gentiles arguing with each other at the judgment day about if they're going to be excused or accused or if they're defending themselves or accusing other people. And man, it's like, I, I, I can't picture that without laughing a little bit. You know, it, it's serious scholars. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, an idea that we want to dismiss, but it's just hard for me to believe that that's what's going on. And then because of that, I really started to dig into this and I noticed that we already have two parties mentioned. Who are the two parties that are mentioned here? You have the conscience, right? And then you have, after that, their conflicting thoughts. So you have their conscience bearing witness, and then you have these conflicting thoughts. Oh, sorry, the, the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience bears witness. And that's why we have these conflicting thoughts between these two parties. The law written on their hearts, and their conscience bearing witness. And here's what I think is going on. Um, you have the conscience bearing witness, and then you have these thoughts accusing and excusing. And I think what's happening is that these two are at odds, especially when we're standing in judgment. Imagine it. Like you remember that time that you thought that thing about that person. You remember that? And now your accusation, right? Your thoughts are accusing you. But then you remember, but, but I held on to the faith, right? Now, now your thoughts are, what, they're excusing you. And then you remember that time that you said that thing to that person. And your thoughts are now, what, accusing you. And then you remember, but I held on to the gospel. And now your thoughts are excusing you. Or you remember the time that you did that thing with or to that person. And now your thoughts are accusing you again. But then you're, but I held on to the gospel, right? I persevered. I believed. Now your thoughts are excusing you. So you're accused in your heart. But then when you remember the gospel, you're standing now in confidence before God, who's going to judge your secrets. And that's why I think this is the case. Look, it's actually, I think, a good thing that God is going to judge our secrets. I think it's a good thing that God is going to judge our secrets because most of us, if we pointed to what we know, right, in our lives, could certainly not make a case that our deeds are going to be what justify us as we stand before God. Isn't that right? But God knows the secret work of our hearts. God knows how he has grown us. He knows how he has shaped us. He knows how he has formed us in the likeness of Jesus. He knows how our perseverance in the faith has been an act of love for him. He knows how the miracle of the Holy Spirit has been what's enabled us to live in faithfulness to the degree that we have. And so God's going to judge our secrets on the day when according to Paul's gospel, this is done by 
Christ Jesus. So this is certain, this is the final judgment. There's no doubt about that. This isn't some kind of intermediate deal. This isn't like, you know, level six Bowser. This is the final judgment when everything is going down and we're going to have this, this inner turmoil, it looks like, as we stand before God. But listen, that shouldn't, that shouldn't worry us because I want you to think of any time in the entire Bible when people did not have inner turmoil when they stood before God. Right? So I think what's actually the case is we're going to be standing before God and we're going to be facing judgment before we've been glorified. Right? Before, before that happens. And so we're not going to have this perfection that's going to come upon us as a gift of the Spirit before we enter into eternity. So it's like life, death, resurrection to judgment, then judgment, and then we enter into a life of sinless bliss. Now when exactly in there we're going to have that moment of perfect glorification, I don't know the answer to that question. But I know it comes sometime after death. Right? Can we all agree on that? And when we stand before God in judgment, we can have confidence because of the gospel this is, this is key. We can have confidence because of the gospel, even while, even while we have conflicting thoughts because of our sin. And I'm just going to tell you, that doesn't have to wait until the judgment. Like right now, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have confidence because of the gospel, even while you have conflicting thoughts because of your sin. In fact, I would say that that's the hallmark of the Christian life. Those two things together. If you don't have conflicting thoughts because of your sin, then I would say that's a shortcoming. Like you haven't understood rightly the magnitude of sin. You haven't understood rightly the degree to which your sin has separated you from a holy God. You haven't understood rightly the cost of your sin. It cost God himself his life. Think about that. Jesus Christ is truly God. And it required his death. That's how significant sin is. So if we haven't had conflicting thoughts because of our sin, then we probably haven't taken the gospel seriously enough. And if we're not confident on account of the gospel, then we probably haven't taken the gospel seriously enough. So that's what I think is going on in this text. And again, this is one of the most difficult texts, I think, in the entire Bible. So if you think that these are Gentiles that aren't Christians, guess what? You can still be a Christian. And you can still go to this church. And we can still have fellowship together. Because there are going to be a lot of times when we're reading the Bible that there are going to be more than one plausible and godly and biblical explanation for what we read. And we're going to be the kind of church that's cool with that. Is that a deal? Okay, cool. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that though we will stand exposed before you in judgment, that though our secrets will be judged when we stand before you in judgment, and though we may have conflicting thoughts when we stand before you in judgment, that we can at the exact same moment have confidence because of the gospel. So I pray that you would plant us in that confidence 
I pray that you would help us to embrace the reality of the cost of our sin so that we can repent, God, so that we can give up on saving ourselves, so that we can give up on proving ourselves, so that we can give up on putting you in our debt. God, I pray that we would also embrace the confidence that comes from the gospel so that we can persevere, so that we can trust you, so that we can have hope even while we struggle through this life. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would put to death our sin day by day, and that by your Spirit, you would give us new energy for obedience, that you would propel us forward in faithfulness. And God, that our deeds of love, that the love we have for you, that the faith that bears itself out in love throughout our lives would bring great glory and honor to you as we stand before you in the final judgment. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.